Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's announcement of using one million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help lower the price of gas and ease the pain at the pump, and today's announcement by Germany that Putin's demand to pay for Russian gas in rubles is blackmail, as Putin issues a deadline of Friday to give in to this blackmail. Joining us to discuss how democratic countries are dealing with the devil since so much of the world's oil and gas comes from countries ruled by despots and dictators is David Knightleg, a Canadian energy expert. He is the founding CEO and board senior advisor of Invest Alberta and the former chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group of the province of Alberta. We will look into his quote in the New York Times that Under the guise of an invasion, Putin is executing an enormous heist in Ukraine, where his real target is the energy riches in the east, which contain Europe's second largest known deposits of natural gas after Norway. Furthermore, Putin's earlier seizure of Crimea captured huge offshore energy fields, and the eastern provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk contain part of an enormous shale gas field. Then we'll assess the extent to which Putin is vulnerable to a backlash from Russian parents as the bodies of their sons are returned from Ukraine since the Soldiers' Mothers' Committee is one of the few non-governmental organizations Putin has not closed down. Joining us is Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, professor and professor of politics at New York University who studies authoritarian leaders. He is the author of a number of books, including The Dictator's Handbook and The Logic of Political Survival, and we will discuss the growing possibility of an inside coup against Putin. Then finally, we will speak with Fred Wertheimer, the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and we will discuss his article at CNN, Finally, a Roadmap to Hold Trump Accountable. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David Knightleg, a Canadian energy expert and the founding CEO and board senior advisor of Invest Alberta. He is the former chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group of the province of Alberta. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Knight-Legg. Thanks, Ian. So uh, obviously I want to talk to you about your quote in the recent uh, article in the New York Times that under the guise of an invasion, Putin is executing an enormous heist in Ukraine. But just let's touch, if you can, on the two big stories coming out today. President Biden uh, is releasing a million barrels a day of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to drive down the price of oil and ease the pain at the pump here in the United States, which is obviously affecting him and his poll numbers. 
And then, of course, Putin is now asking for the West Europeans to pay for the Russian gas in rubles. Uh, the Germans consider yeah. that blackmail. Uh, and Putin has given a deadline of Friday for his customers in Western Europe to start paying in rubles. So let's take that one first. What do you make of it? Well, when you do a deal with the devil, you know, um, look, I think that one of the fundamental issues of the last uh, 10 years has been the increased reliance of Europe on Russia for its gas and uh, the inability of the European uh, nations to make up for the gap in their energy stack with renewables. Instead of relying on democratic sources for their energy, they've turned to Russia and Algeria principally. And, um, and that's a mistake because despotic countries use energy as a weapon and not just as an economic pillar and uh, democratic countries don't. And um, I think that, I think that what's happening with the treatment that Russia is meeting out on Western Europe and on Germany in particular, uh, it's, it's pulling the stark relief things that many of us have been saying for years, which is look, 80% of, of oil and a lot of gas sits inside despotic regimes. And we have to start drawing a distinction between where this energy comes from and the way that despotic regimes will use energy as a weapon and for geopolitical advantage. And uh, Germany's seeing that now. So, you know, I think that what, what I'm hoping is that this starts to clarify the purposes that uh, nations like Russia, but also Iran, also Venezuela, uh, have uh, in, in the way that they manage energy. It's very hard as a Canadian to see a pipeline that brings uh, 800,000 barrels of ethically uh, produced Canadian energy into the United States turned down while the same amount of energy was being delivered by seaborne shipping uh, from Russia every single day into the United States, just over 800,000 barrels. And I think both the United States and Canada, the two democratic superpowers for energy in the planet, need to start to get coordinated on what it means to have this much energy and to be able to utilize it effectively uh, in order to help Europe get off uh, dependency on Russia and other despotic states, but also to start to use our energy to provide a soft power bridge into Asia. Um, and that's particularly important with gas because gas is the principal way that we've displaced carbon emissions in the globe uh, by replacing coal. So the Saudis, of course, are not taking uh, Biden's phone calls and he's, he's desperate to lower the price of gas and they are the swing producer. They could pump a lot of oil and flood the market, and they've done that for previous presidents. So they're a despotic regime too, surely. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. They don't. Uh, they don't have the same approach to human rights uh, and other sort of fundamental values that that democracies do. I think what we have to understand, though, is there are despotic regimes that we can work with or that we have alliances with and they're despotic regimes we can't. I think what you're seeing happen with the Saudis, the reason that they're furious, uh, as Israel is with the Biden administration, is because at the same time this war is going on, the Biden administration is using Russian diplomats that, re that are managed by Putin to negotiate with the Iranians, the new Iranian uh, accord. And this, this, those are, that's a huge crossed wire for the Saudis who are fighting proxy battles with the with the Iranians, with the Houthis, 
and um, reject outright the Iranian claims on kind of regional hegemony. And those, you know, Iran is the second largest gas supply in, in the world and one of the largest oil producers in the world, sort of the top five oil producer. And so this is to sort of invite conversations with um, a, a nation that is at odds with people that we've seen in the past and have got to be sort of uh, allies of convenience uh, in, the, in the Saudi regime. I do think, though, Ian, stepping back, one of the things that you notice uh, when you look at this, there's a lot of people that, that were sort of surprised by my characterization of what Putin is doing in Ukraine as a heist and saying, look, you know, you're probably overstating that. He's clearly an ethnic nationalist that hates NATO expansion, and he tried to take Kiev, and he's failing. I think what I'd say is, you know, those things can be true, but also he could be stealing over a trillion dollars worth of oil and gas. And, and what he that is exactly what he did with Crimea. And I think Crimea was his first sort of run at using ethnic nationalism and, um, you know, opposition to NATO expansion in 2014, 2015 to take over an enormous amount of energy in the Ukraine. And within a year, he had repurposed it. He had given the assets from NAFTA Gas, which is the Ukrainian national company, to Gazprom. He'd, he'd made an exclusive economic zone across the Black Sea, which took over 80% of the Ukrainian oil and gas reserves in the Black Sea. Extraordinary heist at that time, 2014. And within a year, what he learned, I think the wrong lesson that he learned was that Ukrainians will cave, the Crimeans caved. And I think he got that wrong. And I think he's in a lot of trouble. And I think he made huge strategic mistakes trying to accomplish the same thing he did in Korea and Crimea with Kiev. But I think what he also learned is that the West forgets and within a within a year or two, the West was right back uh, at his doorstep buying the oil, including the oil and gas that he'd stolen. And I think what I'm hoping is that this time the West doesn't forget that we recognize that in addition to his ethnic nationalism, hating NATO expansion, despising Ukrainian democracy, he is also very clearly got his army completely embedded in the 10 percent of Ukrainian land that holds 90 percent of their resources and he's, he's attacking and pounding Mariupol, which is the most pro-Russian city in the Ukraine. So if this is about ethnic uh, nationalism and reunification, that is an odd way to manage a campaign. He's pounding uh, Mariupol to dust. And he's doing that because if it's also about energy, Mariupol provides him with the Sea of Azov access, which helps him get all the Donbass assets out to global markets and the Russian assets out to global markets on that side. It provides him with the essential land bridge he needs to his assets in Crimea, and it landlocks uh, the Ukraine for a generation, uh, which is effectively a slow death uh, economically and politically for that country. So what I'm most concerned about is that we don't end up allowing them to sue for peace and hold those territories the way that uh, you know I think he's anticipating. And again, I'm speaking with David Knightleg, a Canadian energy expert and the founding CEO and senior board advisor of Invest Alberta. He is the former chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group of the province of Alberta. But just to clarify the context of the conversation here, David Knightleg, what is under the ground there in the east of Ukraine is Europe's second largest known reserves of natural gas after Norway. And as you pointed out, Putin's previous seizure of Crimea means that there's a huge offshore energy fields, which now Putin controls. And also in the eastern provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk, that's where there's an enormous shale gas field. 
So yeah. this is really the subtext, if it's not, that there is a huge energy component to this war. Absolutely. And I think that the, you know, I was, the, the way that, that Brett Stevens and I connected on this topic was actually in a very open discussion where somebody said, you know, I think that he's a madman. I think that he's made huge strategic mistakes. He's blinded by ethnic national rage. He's going to suffer in a long urban conflict, grow a war. He's a tyrant, so he never hears the whole truth. And that's that information asymmetry is dooming him. And I, I just sort of made a, a point, which is those things can be true on one front in this war, but on another front, the way that he's positioned his armies, the supply chains and, and the tactics uh, don't make sense of that ethnic national thing. You're not, he's not uh, treating Mariupol the way he is because he's trying to reunify people. He's doing it because he fully intends to take these assets the way he took them in Crimea and I think he's hoping that the West, a, you know, either A, doesn't see it and, and goes along, um, or B, that he entrenches and he's able to sort of fight from a position of strength where there are no supply chain or supply line problems. Um, and so I think the, the, what's at stake right now is, is sort of a couple of things. One is the specific Ukraine situation and the way that it's managed by the West so that we don't end up putting pressure on Ukraine to settle uh, when Putin does sue for, sue for peace to take a settlement that would uh, reward him um, or reward this this heist strategy. I think the second thing is it's a wake-up call, particularly to the United States and Canada, um, to start to coordinate on the power that we have as the two largest democracies with the greatest sort of energy resources on the planet, to start to provide that energy, not only to Europe, which desperately needs it and is on track to be importing 90% of their energy by 2030, but also to places in Asia that we want to have soft power connections to and a strong commercial relationship with. You know, the U.S. is number one gas producer. Canada is number four in the world. Uh, Alberta, where I'm from, has more oil than the United States, Russia, and China all put together. It's the third largest reserve base in the planet. It's extraordinary, uh, you know, strategic resource, and it, we have incredible capability. But right now, these two great democracies can't put a pipeline between each other. You know, they're, you, you literally have, you know, uh, an emissary from from the administration talking to Venezuela about oil oil production, and uh, and we have extraordinary base and the ability to give it and complete values alignment between these two great countries. And so one of the, the, you know, the Ukraine situation points to a problem that actually we have the capacity to solve, uh, you know, through our energy and also through the fact that even with only 20% of global oil held in democracies and half of that held in Alberta, that that 20% uh, is managed principally by shareholder led free, transparent, free market companies. The other 80% is, is almost entirely managed by national-owned companies. And the difference that makes is that our countries, our companies come up with the innovations on carbon capture, development of hydrogen, better nuclear, better renewables. These are the companies that hold the smartest engineering teams in the world that are solving some of the biggest energy challenges in the world. We have to get behind that and start coordinating with each other and start cooperating and creating cooperation with Europe. And we may have to use NATO to do it after this Ukraine war. 
Well, David Nightleg, I'm sorry we've run out of time, but I appreciate the conversation, and uh, let's pick it up again. That sounds great, Ian. Thanks for taking the time with me. And again, I've been speaking with David Nightleg, who's a Canadian energy expert and the founding CEO and board senior advisor of Invest Alberta. He is the former chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group of the province of Alberta. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the extent to which Putin is vulnerable to a backlash from Russian parents as the bodies of their sons are returned from Ukraine. Get from out the road when he get dough was horrible. Time is money, spend way, save, invest a fest. The ten case of cave a chicken chest S. Yes, y'all a double get your trickles. The best ball is pitching and rub to get a nickels. But tut tut, he about to change the price again and go up each time he blow up like hydrogen. Villain here, have him shrilling in fear. It won't stop top bill until he a gazillionaire. Villain, his agenda is clear. Ending this year with dividends to spear here. A new meaning to sales through the roof. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Bruce Bueno de Mosquita, Professor and Professor of Politics at New York University who studies authoritarian leaders. He's the author of a number of books including The Dictator's Handbook and The Logic of Political Survival. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bruce Bueno de Mosquita. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been much made about body bags coming home to Russia and that that may be Putin's Achilles heel. Obviously, he's got ubiquitous control of the media and he's cracked down on what little was left of independent media. So state media dominates. So it's pretty hard to penetrate that bubble. And I'm not sure that the U.S. is uh, using whatever soft power tools it has in that regard, but we can talk about that. But in terms of Putin's vulnerability... It would seem, particularly now that this pitch battle is going on at Mariupol, where the Russians apparently are suffering huge casualties, but they're determined to take the city at all costs. I imagine that the Russian casualties are pretty high. I've heard figures as high as 40,000 dead, which would be, if you factor in the ratio of wounded, it could be up to 100,000 wounded. So I'm not sure those figures are accurate, but even the, the latest ones that we've had are pretty damning in terms of the numbers of casualties. So what's your sense then of, of how vulnerable Putin is? So uh, Putin is in uh, an interesting position. You know, people talk about him as a dictator and so forth, uh, and that's partially true. But we should realize there's a, there's a range in what it means to be a dictator or a democratic leader. Uh, Ukraine, for example, is certainly more democratic than Russia, but it's not vastly more democratic. And Russia is more account- has a more accountable government than, say, China. So uh, in terms of your question, that's important because Putin's regime resides in an accountability neighborhood uh, that makes him susceptible uh, both to coup d'etat and to a lesser degree to mass uprisings. Uh, casualties are a way to precipitate mass uprising. The sanctions are a way to precipitate a coup. I would say a coup is considerably more likely than a successful mass uprising. Uh, but even if the casualty numbers you just mentioned are three times larger than reality. We're talking big numbers, uh, and that's going to, if that information gets in, it's going to precipitate more and more people 
uh, on the streets ready to rebel against the regime. And inevitably, some version of those numbers will get in because bodies are going to come back and families are going to get their bo- those bodies. And if they don't get them, they're going to know they're not hearing from their sons and daughters. And either way, if people begin to talk to each other, the word spreads. Well, Bruce, you were quoted in an article recently in the Los Angeles Times, uh, Putin versus the web, Russia tries to hide casualties and searing war images. And talk about searing war images. In that uh, article, there were a number of pictures of Ukrainian soldiers rummaging through the bodies of, of Russian dead that are just scattered in the fields. And that's my understanding, is that there's just dead bodies of Russians all over the place. And are the Russians making an effort to retrieve their bodies? Obviously, uh, in the pictures in, in the article in the Los Angeles Times, the Ukrainians have taken over that territory, and they don't seem to be interested in doing anything. They just leave these dead lying around like, you know, trash. Yeah, it does seem uh, that the Russians don't make a great effort to recover their dead. But the families of the dead are going to know this, of course, they were getting cell phone calls from their fam- from their family members who are out in- fighting in Ukraine, and they're not getting those calls anymore. They're going to put two and two together, and pretty quickly they're going to come up with four, uh, and that's going to mean um, more people recognizing that the regime is failing them. I-, I don't want to overstate that because, again, he's more vulnerable to the threat of coup than he is to the threat of mass uprising. Well, one of the things apparently that he's done in terms of who the soldiers are and where they're recruited from and where the casualties are coming from, my understanding is that a lot of these soldiers, the the ones in the South are better trained and more professional apparently, but the conscripts in the North, a lot of them come from the furthest backwards of Russia, way out near Mongolia and Lake Baikal and and Dagestan and places like that. And a lot of these kids from these poor rural areas join the military simply to get out of these uh, the sort of towns that are going nowhere and where they don't have any future. There was an article the other day I read about the burial of a couple of soldiers way out near the Mongolian border in this little Buddhist area where the parents are outraged, but they don't necessarily have much political clout. Is that your understanding? Yeah, uh, that is my understanding. Um, uh, There are a lot more conscripts fighting uh, than uh, apparently Putin himself understood to be the case. Uh, The Russian army is shorthanded, apparently. Uh, And... You know, as was true in the United States uh, decades ago, uh, the military, especially a conscript military, uh, is likely to be made up of folks who don't have the leverage to pursue a different career. Uh, So I I think your characterization is is correct. Uh, And again, that's that's why coup is more likely than rebellion because the folks who are supplying manpower uh, to the military are not people with a lot of clout. And it it takes in a society like Russia, as we saw during Gorbachev's time, 
an incredibly massive turnout of people in big cities, uh, people who can stop the economy from functioning, the, the domestic economy. And, you know, that, that's just not where the, where the real leverage is in Russia. Among, it's not among the people. So the real danger, uh, which unfortunately the Los Angeles Times article was not interested in focusing on, is coup d'etat. Uh, the insiders uh, are, are the people who have clout, and uh, they're losing tons of money. Uh, and it's very likely that if Putin were replaced with an alternative authoritarian leader, one who, however, would pull out of Ukraine, uh, that the sanctions would be lifted. So uh, you know, that is a, it's pretty straightforward. They can start to see their money flowing if they can get rid of Putin. The masses would see their economic circumstances improve too, but uh, they're not needed to keep Putin in power. The inner circle is needed. The, the, the folks who control uh, the money and the guns are the folks who are needed. And again, I'm speaking with Bruce Bueno de Mosquita, a professor and professor of politics at New York University who studies authoritarian leaders. He's the author of a number of books, including The Dictator's Handbook and The Logic of Political Survival. Well, apparently the, the likely success to Putin has been Shoigu, his defense minister, who doesn't have a background in the military. He's likely to be on the chopping block. You've got Petrushev, his national advisor, who's even more hawkish than Putin could possibly be. It's possible that Putin could be replaced by somebody that's worse than him. Uh, it's possible, but it's very unlikely. Uh, it, because the folks who want to replace him, it's not going to be a random draw of somebody. The, the people who have an incentive to remove him have an, don't have an incentive to give up their clout. So they're going to want somebody who needs them uh, and will be somebody they need. Uh, but they're going to want somebody who needs them and who can get the sanctions lifted. So they're going to be selective about who the successor is. And a very good indicator that Putin is fearful of a coup is the fact that he's purging people. He's, he's putting uh, senior intelligence officers, senior military uh, under house arrest and uh, removing them from their posts, that's a good indicator that he thinks that they are among uh, the crowd who might try to overthrow him. You, you mentioned Shoigu, you, as you correctly point out, uh, he doesn't have uh, military experience to speak of. Uh, and it's also it's clear that uh, his position has become more precarious. He disappeared for a couple of weeks. He seems now to be back, whether he is uh, back in favor or he is simply uh, back for show is very hard to say. Uh, but there are lots of other people who are critical to uh, Putin's machine operating effectively. And if, if they can coordinate with each other, then they could replace him. Of course, that's why he has or that's part of why he has cracked down further on the ability to exchange information uh, or even for people to gather. Because the, the way you make a coup is you are able to share your displeasure uh, with the regime and you're able to do that with people who you trust uh, 
will share that view. Uh, It's, of course, risky business sharing that view because if any of them go to the boss and say, don't trust this guy, they'll gain favor and you'll be out. So it's easier to purge than it is to make a coup. But that is the danger he faces. So Putin has offered, what, 5 million rubles, about $50,000 to the parents of uh, those that have been killed. Given the state of the economy, that's not much money. What about the possibility, you know, if you go back to America's experience in the Vietnam War, uh, where the draftees were rebellious and there was a phenomenon of fragging where they'd drop a fragmentation grenade into a bunker to kill the officers. Is there any of that going on, do you think? Uh, I heard a report, and I don't know whether it's accurate or not, that some Russian soldiers ran over a colonel with their tank. Yeah, I've heard reports like that as well. I've heard that there were some members of the National Guard who refused to be deployed to Ukraine on the grounds that uh, the National Guard is a National Guard. But I don't think it's a lot. Uh, And if, in fact, he is paying them the equivalent of $50,000, that is a ton of money in Russia. Uh, Per capita income is about $10,000 bit over 10,000. So that would be equivalent to five years of income. Uh, It reminds me when Saddam Hussein was alive, uh, there was a period where he paid $10,000 to uh, the families of suicide uh, bombers. um, And he he attracted lots of suicide bombers. Eventually, uh, the Palestinians ran short on suicide bombers at that price. He raised the price to 25000 uh, and that induced people to volunteer. So uh, it, it's not inconceivable uh, that at 50000 um, Russians are wealthier than Palestinians were at the time uh, or now. Uh, it's quite possible that at $50,000, he can induce a fair number of uh, people to join up, that they're willing to take the risk uh, at that price for their family. But whether he can generate enough to sustain a war is quite another question. You want to remember when you talk about that 50,000, I had heard a lower number than that, but whatever. Uh, We are talking about the portion of society uh, that is poorest. So it's not the people who are making more than $10,000 who are joining the military. It's the people who are making a lot less. And for their families, uh, that would be a huge bailout. It, it, it's reminiscent of what the Japanese government did for those who volunteered to be kamikaze pilots in World War II. Uh, their family's debt was forgiven, uh, and uh, they were put in a much better financial situation than they had been before. So not inconceivable that you can attract recruits with that amount of money, especially unlike suicide bombers. These are folks who are going to get killed with, with a positive probability, but it's not a sure thing. Suicide bombers is pretty much a sure thing. So, Bruce, what's happening with the Soldiers' Mothers Committee? That's supposedly an organization that Putin has, can't shut down because it's so popular. And I don't know whether the body bags are coming back to Moscow and St. Petersburg, which would make a big difference, I think to the public opinion, but what's your sense of the Soldiers' Mothers Committee? They they must be pretty busy. Don't they feel calls from mothers asking what happened to their sons? Yeah, exactly. So they are the sort of 
organization that uh, can become the conduit uh, for mass uprising, even if that's not their objective, uh, because they are assembling the information to inform families as best as they can. And families are feeding them information. I haven't heard from my son for two weeks. He was calling every day. Do you know anything? Okay, they now are amassing data that begins to indicate how widespread uh, deaths or uh, being taken as a POW uh, is. And as that if that information gets circulated, as it inevitably will, that is the sort of information that can bring people to the streets because of the personal loss that they are suffering. And that, that's hard to beat back. It, it's hard for him to quash that information exactly because the organization is popular. Uh, it, it's hard to say for government to say, no, no, it, it's subversive for mothers to know how their children are. Uh, so that's the, exactly the sort of situation that puts an autocratic leader uh, in a very tough spot. So on the one hand, his inner circle is not feeling great loyalty to him because he's costing them a fortune. And on the other hand, large numbers of Russians, as this information circulates, are not feeling supportive of him because their children are being killed. So he is facing uh, a, 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 a rope tug on one side, facing the threat of a coup. The solution for coup threats is to purge people. On the other hand, he's facing the threat that the people will rise up and refuse to support the regime. And if enough of them do that, they can bring it down. And the solution to that is to liberalize the regime. Well, he's not terribly inclined to liberalize, but without liberalizing, if the masses rise up, uh, they're going to bring him down. And uh, if he is purging, he's making them more likely to rise up because he doesn't have uh, a set of inner circle uh, cronies and and the masses of of their supporters that they can turn out to quash the movement of mothers. He's in a very tough spot. Just in closing here, uh, Bruce, President Zelensky in a recent video address likened the Russian recruits to confused children who have been used. And the Ukraine's ambassador to the UN recently read a text from a mother, the final message from a young Russian soldier to his mother, Mama, it's so hard. So it's obviously focuses on the terrible destruction of Ukraine cities and the wanton murder of its civilian population by Putin. But there is this other aspect of these poor kids, bewildered, lost, told that they were going on a military exercise and now being killed in droves. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Bruce. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, professor and professor of politics at New York University who studies authoritarian leaders. He's the author of a number of books, including The Dictator's Handbook and The Logic of Political Survival. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a roadmap to hold Trump accountable. Just 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Fred Wertheimer, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at CNN, Finally, a Roadmap to Hold Trump Accountable. Welcome to Background Briefing, Fred Wertheimer. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, Donald Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his uh, business life and in his political life. He dodged uh, the bullets with two impeachments, the Mueller report, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which provided massive evidence of his collusion with the Russians. And we heard him on tape shaking down the Secretary of State in Georgia, asking him for 11,000-plus votes, just one more, than he said, to turn the election over. So my concern is that aren't we up against some serious deadlines here? I mean, for example, if the Republicans win in November, by January of 2023, there will be no inquiries. In fact, the tables will turn and the Republicans will start having special investigations into Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and they'll go after every member of the January 6th committee. So tell me something's going to happen soon, because I'm getting worried here. Well, first of all, the House of Representatives is favored to go Republican. The Senate, the Democrat is, the Senate, excuse me, is still an open question between Democrats and Republicans. And if the, uh, but on your question of timing, the House committee knows it's up against a timing deadline. Uh, uh, They are talking about having starting hearings next month. Their role is to have public hearings to try to explain to the country precisely what happened. And then to issue a report and make recommendations. The court cases are a different story. Uh, There is a case in New York that the attorney general is investigating, dealing with Trump. There's a case in Georgia that the district attorney is investigating uh, about Trump's attempt to uh, interfere and uh, improperly interfere with the election results in Georgia. There's a lot of things going on. Uh, The clock is a problem, and it's always a problem when you're dealing with Trump uh, because he has spent his career dragging out proceedings involving him. Throughout his business career, he he, he did that on financial issues, Uh, He did it while president, and he's doing it now. So the clock is a problem. The committee will get the best work it can get done in this time frame. But there's an awful lot of information out there right now. The 
the judge in the California case who recently made a, a finding that uh, that it was more likely than not that uh, Trump had engaged in criminal activities. Uh, he he made the following finding. He said, Dr. Eastman, now that's the attorney who had a principal role in coming up with this uh, effort to overturn the presidential election. He said, quote, Dr. Eastman and President Trump launched a campaign to overturn a democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. Uh, and then he went on to say, their campaign was not confined to the ivory tower. It was a coup in search of a legal theory. And that is about as good a description of what was going on uh, as I have seen. This was an effort at a political coup uh, following a presidential election that President Trump clearly lost, that there was no evidence of any any impactful fraud. In fact, Trump's own people called it the most secure election in history, in our history. Uh, and they were looking for every angle uh, to try to uh, uh, overturn an election. And they overreached. Uh, there's a I mean, it, one of the issues in terms of whether there's going to be any criminal prosecution of Trump, and that's an open question, and it's not an easy question, but you need criminal intent uh, for to bring a criminal indictment. Well, in Georgia, when President Trump talks to the Secretary of State and basically says, Look, all I'm asking you to do is find one more vote uh, than the number of votes I lost by. That's not an, a request for uh, an investigation to find out if whether there was an illegal fraud or not. That's a request to improperly and illegally overturn the election. So there's an awful lot of information that has come out already. It will keep coming out, and we'll have to see. But it is important for President Trump to be held accountable for what he did. How that is done is not clear, uh, but history requires accountability for what was an attempted political coup for the first time in the history of this country. And again, I'm speaking with Fred Wertheim, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at CNN, Finally, a Roadmap to Hold Trump Accountable. And uh, Judge Carter's California federal case was a civil proceeding, right? So Eastman will appeal and delay. I mean, doesn't it really come down to, as I mentioned earlier, the clock is ticking on various cases? But well, Judge Carter's case really is not about any kind of action against President Trump. 
It is about the subpoenas that the committee issued uh, to to Eastman that he was fighting. But yes, the the clock is ticking here, uh, and it's going to be a problem. But the accountability issue doesn't end at the end of this year. The role of the House January 6th committee may end, and they may well be able to document for history and for the American people the uh, fact that the president engaged in criminal conduct in order to try to overturn an election that he had clearly lost. Uh, but they can't take any action against them. They can make a referral to the Justice Department. Uh, if there's going to be a criminal indictment, it will have to come from the Justice Department, and they don't have a ticking clock right now. But they have a very hard decision to make. So we'll have to take it uh, day by day, week by week, But there must be a maximum effort on all fronts to not let former President Trump get away with what he attempted. And he's still doing. I mean, he's still pumping the stop to steal lie. He still controls the Republican Party. He clearly plans on running in 2024. He's, at this point... (laughs) apparently unstoppable. I don't buy that. I don't agree with that. I just, I do not agree with that. Uh, And uh, in fact, I think he's, he is weakening as a force in part because he will not let go of the 2020 election. So if you notice when he had his big rally in Georgia recently, uh, there was a, relatively small turnout uh, for him. Uh, We will see what happens uh, in all of the primary candidates he's supporting. uh, He clearly has control of the Republican Party as a so-called party right now. It's really the Trump Party. But there are years to go here. And there is lots of intervening actions that are going to occur, and we'll see. But I, I do not uh, buy or accept the idea that he's on a path to glory. Uh, uh, I just don't see that in the cards for the months and years ahead. But Fred, what time? just a few days ago, the uh, House Select Committee looking into the January 6th insurrection, issued subpoenas for Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino. And in the course of that, one of the congresspeople on the panel, Congresswoman Luria, almost issued a challenge to the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, saying, Merrick Garland, do your job. So again, I don't mean to keep pressing uh, the ticking clock, but the Justice Department has a kind of policy not to get involved in political matters close to an election, so presumably there's a ticking clock coming. I don't know how many months before November they don't want to touch this hot potato. But hadn't they better do something soon? Uh, there isn't a ticking clock for 2024 right now. 
But listen, remember what we thought when the president and others were pressing uh, Attorney General Barr uh, to take action against Biden uh, to to ha- exercise political pressure on the Justice Department. That was highly objectionable then, and I'm not particularly uh, in favor of outside political pressure uh, uh, controlling decisions by what we have always uh, uh, looked for as an independent Justice Department. You can't judge what's going to happen here about whether the subpoenas are answered or not. There's plenty of other information that has been gathered. And this is a long fight. This is not a fight in terms of the end of 2022. The real deadline here is the 2024 presidential election. So uh, uh, you are raising the clock question, and it's a problem. But it's not an insurmountable problem. And what can and should and will be done with regard to President Trump should not be judged by whether these subpoenas are enforced or not. That's my view. Well, uh, your article ends uh, on a strong note. Again, your article at CNN, finally a roadmap to hold Trump accountable. It ends on a very strong note saying that, that matters that matters for the sake of holding Trump and his enablers, what matters for the sake of holding Trump and his enablers accountable for stopping the ongoing big lie crime spree of the MAGA faction. Well, let me read the whole thing. Hopefully we'll all use the roadmap the judge has provided, meaning Judge Carter has provided, to do something about the underlying offences. That matters for the sake of holding Trump and his enablers accountable for stopping the ongoing big lie crime spree of the MAGA faction of the GOP and for protecting our democracy itself. So there it is in, in, in... Yes, and that's my view. And I don't think anything I've said is inconsistent with that. Uh, uh, I've uh, I said at the very beginning, pres- former President Trump has to be held accountable. Uh, and it's important not just in terms of holding him accountable, but in terms of holding... Uh, those who follow him and have engaged in improper conduct accountable also. But uh, you have to do it in a way that he's held accountable. You can't do it by our sentence in or by our op-ed. And you have to pursue all avenues. And I think there are a number of avenues that are being pursued. All I am saying is don't judge whether he's going to be held accountable or not by whether some of these participants are not complying with the subpoena uh, or by the December 31st end of this Congress. Look, if the criminal referrals are made to the Justice Department, and the Justice Department takes action against these people uh, to comply with the subpoena. Uh, that's not going to not going to happen before December thirty first. Furthermore, at that point, they could take the Fifth Amendment. 
So th- there's no magic bullet here. This has to be uh, pursued on all fronts as effectively and skillfully as we can. Uh, one of the worst results you would have here is if President, if former President Trump was indicted and acquitted. That would be a terrible result because that would cleanse him in the eyes of the American people. So this has to be done, as I say, effectively and skillfully uh, with various avenues working at it. I think that's going on now. Uh, I think it's going to take more work and more time. But I don't think we should judge this at this point of the game by the clock. Uh, The clock is much more important in terms of 24 than it is in 2022. So just in closing then, Fred Wertheimer, is that to say then, given that the House, the Republicans are likely to pick up the House in uh, November and then in January 2023, they'll they'll kill any investigation uh, and turn the tables and start investigating Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and everybody on this committee. I mean, you have to admit that only two Republicans have shown any decency here and any sense of the Constitution. It was, after all, their building where they work that was attacked on January the 6th. It's almost incomprehensible that they would not be outraged. And McCarthy was outraged on the day that it happened, but they've all then bought on to the big lie. So just in closing, is do you think that the, the best chance so far uh, is the Georgia case and the New York Attorney General's case now that the Manhattan DA has dropped the ball? Well, you're ignoring the Justice Department, and I do not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a story today that the Justice Department has now broadened its criminal investigation beyond the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection into the events that led up to that insurrection. And the financing. Well, uh, we don't know that it's limited to the financing. (laughs) Uh, Certainly the events that led up to that insurrection certainly can include uh, uh, Trump and the people who were closest to him. Uh, I don't, by the way, expect that they will investigate every member on the committee, uh, every Democrat on the committee. I just do not see that happening. Uh, The Democrats aren't doing that now to the Republicans. Uh, But uh, the Justice Department will be there. The New York case will be there. Uh, But you also have to watch what happens in these primary elections. Uh, Because you've already seen Trump run away from one of his early endorsements of Mo Brooks in Alabama, who was on the uh, on the Capitol ellipse. Uh, making a big speech for Trump on January 6th, and he's now walked away from them. If he loses a number of key primaries, uh, that's going to be a problem for him politically. And uh, if he loses the Senate, I mean, the Senate Republicans have a number of quiet people, but... He has a number of enemies up there. 
I'm not going to defend the Senate, the Republicans, the congressional Republicans. Uh, 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 there's no justification or explanation for their fear of Trump other than the idea that they might lose a primary. Uh, but uh, he's got enemies within his own party. So uh, I don't, as I say, I don't think November 31st, December 31st is the deadline here. Uh, and you, if he, you know, he was, he really is widely believed to have lost the Senate to, for the Democrats by telling people in Republicans in Georgia not to vote in the special election. So there are a combination of things going on. One is the accountability question from a legal standpoint. The other is the accountability question from a political standpoint. And we have to watch and pursue both of those. Uh, all I can say is that we and others will do everything we can to make sure he is held accountable. Our organization, Democracy 21, is conducting a, a Trump watch project where we are going to watchdog Trump and all of his uh, enablers. And where opportunities arise, uh, we will challenge their ab the abuses, their current abuses. Because as you say, the current abuses haven't stopped. We see them in all of the voter subversion and voter suppression laws that were passed in the name of the big lie. We got a battle on our hands, but it's a battle that I believe can be won. Uh, and in the end, we cannot lose sight of the fact that in 2020, Donald Trump lost the presidential election at a time when his party did very well. Well, Fred Wernheimer, from your lips to God's ears, and I thank you for joining us here today. I'm always glad to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, I've been speaking with Fred Wertheimer, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. Wertheimer has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at CNN, Finally, a Roadmap to Hold Trump Accountable. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared